Right, the ordinance of covenanting. <clears throat> We're up to uh, the Psalm Leading Covenant, Part Three. This is Week Forty. Fourth term of communion. That public social covenanting is an ordinance of God, obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament. The National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution, and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person. <coughs> we're up to the second article. There are uh, six articles we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. We started last week with Article 1. Now we're to Article 2. <coughs> um, <coughs> We'll be looking at the, uh, the various things that are grouped together in Article 2. <coughs> what we see in Article 2, in brief, is the idea that prelacy, <coughs> um, the idea of hierarchical bishops, <coughs> Uh, prelacy is what a lot of the Puritans would call a limb of Antichrist. What they mean by that is this, and we see it as the association in the second article. <coughs> prelacy is something very much <coughs> structurally arranged like the most objectionable elements of popery. Right? Prelacy, um, in fact, functions very much like popery. And in the course of, of looking at church history, <clears throat> it becomes very apparent that the early church moves from, <coughs> from having this Presbyterian structure where you have, uh, you have a, a pastor who was a bishop, but he was a bishop of a local congregation. And then you have elders. <coughs> In time, the provincial organization of the church what we would call presbyteries, <coughs> those divisions became, um, they became uh, monitored and, and governed by one bishop. So you would have one bishop over several what we would call pastors. <coughs> What looks like happened is in these presbyteries, uh, one teaching elder, <clears throat> one pastor, generally speaking, uh, was chosen to be moderator, and very often it was the elder or most experienced minister in that presbytery. And <clears throat> What became, what, what happened, I should say, with that is, in time, 
rather than being a convention amongst the presbyters of the church, that position of moderator became its own office. And the term bishop then was applied to the guy who was over a number of pastors. <clears throat> we know that it was changing around the time of Augustine and Jerome in the 400s. It was, uh, I think it was Jerome who said that uh, this idea of a hierarchical bishop that that was a relatively new convention in the church. But when you start thinking in this hierarchical way, you eventually end up with this idea that, well, if you have one guy over a province and then one guy over a bigger territory, ultimately we need one person over the whole church. And that becomes the Bishop of Rome, and he becomes the Pope. <clears throat> and when that, when that becomes a settled uh, state of affairs in the church, that represented the decline of the church into an anti-Christian system. The Christian system was not meant to have one person ruling over everyone. <clears throat> Unless that one person is Jesus, right? So... Uh, the, the fact is, uh, the Pope has taken upon himself uh, titles like uh, the Vicar of Christ, which uh, the word vicar means literally instead of Christ. Um, he, the, the, the papal claims <coughs> over the centuries became more and more pronounced uh, to the point where eventually the doctrine of papal infallibility is uh, it became a dogma of the Roman Church in 1870, Vatican I. <clears throat> uh, before that, there had been a vigorous argument within even the Roman Church, but this structure was a problem in the early reformers, the proto-reformers, people like Wycliffe, Haas, uh, people in the you know, 13 and 1400s who were trying to bring reform in the Western Church, they kept running into the barrier that was this hierarchical structure. It became apparent <clears throat> over the course of a couple centuries that you can't reform Romanism within because there is no within. Everything is, in a sense dangling from the guy at the top. And when the guy at the top is um, hostile to what the reformers are trying to point out the Bible saying, it's impossible for that to reform. And the corruption and the power <clears throat> had become magnified to the point there's a very famous quote from Vatican I. <coughs> Uh, it, the, the quote is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, that was spoken by a member of the conciliarist party in the Roman Church against the Ultramontanist party. The Ultramontanist party was the French wing. 
<coughs> and uh, or you should say not the French wing, the uh, the Italian wing, and they they um, the French wing liked the conciliaris generally. Uh, the, the the Italian wing liked having this papal authority over the councils, rather than prior to that uh, among the papists the. The Pope was sort of there to <clears throat> to give his assent or veto, but he didn't have a power over the councils. It was sort of a coordinate power. Uh, nonetheless, this structure, this hierarchical structure, was a logjam when it came to reform. And this is exactly why Luther and then Calvin, Zwingli, uh, the Protestant reformers, all end up outside of the Roman Church. In England, <clears throat> because the Reformation in England was somewhat insular, uh, because England is an island after all, <coughs> Britain, uh, the, the, the Reformation in, in Britain was carried out somewhat independent of what Luther and Calvin and those folks are doing on the continent. Um, under Henry VIII, the Anglican Church was the Reformed Church most amenable to this idea of hierarchical bishops. Now there are in some of the Lutheran churches <clears throat> the Swedish church, the uh, Norwegian, uh, I think the Danish, those churches where Lutheranism gained a clear and clean ascendancy, um, the Erastianism of the church, uh, the Erastian influence of the, of the civil magistrate in the church, uh, that tended to go along with this hierarchical structure. Because the hierarchical structure is political rather than religious per se. And it lends itself <clears throat> to the politics of this world. And so those Lutheran churches had a much more Erastian character. Uh, it took a little longer for that to become apparent in the Germanies where it was broken up more and you had... Uh, various German states where you had vying interests between the Lutherans who reformed and the, and the Romanists. <coughs> anyway, um, by the time of the Second Reformation, it has become clear to the Scottish Presbyterians and to the Puritans in England that certain kinds of reform are never going to come to the church as long as we're dealing with this hierarchical bishop idea. Uh, because they are more responsive to the civil magistrate and the interests of the civil government than they are to the genuine interests of the church. <coughs> so, <coughs> prelacy, uh, whereas the first reformation had to do with popery, and they understood that popery was anti-Christian, uh, that was not as clear yet about prelacy. By the time of the Second Reformation, it becomes clear 
that prelacy shares way too much common territory with popery. So a lot of what we're going to be talking about in this article has to do with prelacy and the corrupting influences of prelacy in the church. And with this article, what we're finding, what we see is that uh, the Protestant churches are pretty well united in opposition to this idea of hierarchical bishops, at least in the English-speaking world. That's uh, not to say that there's not um, some push among Lutherans even uh, today, but the the, the reform, the English-speaking Reformed um, are going to be heavily influenced in this direction by the Scots, and the fact is that the Dutch, the Swiss, the French Reformed churches, the German Reformed churches, all of them have already gotten rid of hierarchical bishops, right? But it becomes more of an ideological and religious point now with the Solemn League and Covenant. <clears throat> you have to understand that as the Reformation is advancing, uh, certain things are becoming apparent that were not necessarily at the beginning. Think of it in terms of when you first become a Christian, you know, some of the big stuff uh, that was wrong, that you, you knew was wrong. You always kind of knew that was wrong, and that, that, that starts to fade away. But then, you know, you start discovering other things in yourself and about yourself, maybe, that you didn't see before because it was obscured by these big things. <clears throat> and so there's a sense in which this is a diminutive corruption, but it is a corruption nonetheless, and it's causing a problem in England uh, at this time, and so they're concerned that if the Scots are going to be in league with the English, uh, the English Parliament against the King, possibly, that they want to be uh, in league on terms of the true religion, and they're not absolutely hostile to the monarchy, but they want the monarchy to be hemmed in. Uh, they, you know, Protestantism in general has never liked the idea of one guy having all the power. <clears throat> There's a reason why nations influenced by Protestantism have tended uh, to favor uh, Republican forms of government uh, politically. Right? There's, there's a tendency in that direction among Protestant nations in particular. And it has to do with all of this. So, the second article, <clears throat> number two, that we shall in like manner, without respect of persons, endeavor the extirpation of popery, prelacy, that is, church government by archbishops, bishops, their chancellors and commissioners, deans, deans and chapters, uh, archdeacons, and all other ecclesiastical officers, depending on that hierarchy, superstition, heresy, schism, profaneness, and whatsoever shall be found, contrary to sound doctrine, power of godliness, 
uh, lest we partake in other men's sins and thereby be in danger to receive their plagues, that the Lord may be one and his name one in the three kingdoms. So, <clears throat> we're going to look at this sort of point by point. Um, one note before we get into it, uh, one thing that has been leveled against the Psalm Laden Covenant is that this must necessarily be a persecuting principle because we're talking about endeavoring the extirpation of popery, prelacy, etc. Um, to keep in mind, it was the Roman Catholic Church that was endeavoring to extirpate Protestants, not Protestantism, but Protestants. Protestants want to destroy the idea of popery, the idea of prelacy, right? But they're not. It doesn't say the extirpation of papists and prelates, right? That's not what we're saying. It's not to say that there aren't sanctions when you when you had people <clears throat> who were um, ardent uh, supporters of those things who refused to to um, budge, right? But the fact is, these are uh, this covenant is in fact designed to pursue every kind of course uh, that will undermine the things that we're talking about here. Popery, prelacy, heresy, superstition, and all of that. And by the way, the mention of schism here, which is not something we're going to be talking about um, specifically uh, in, in a lot of detail. Uh, we'll talk about it a little bit, but <clears throat> that idea of schism, <clears throat> if we're talking about the, the prelates on the one hand, that idea of schism is actually aimed at the, um, the independents, uh, the kind of people who were the Congregationalists and the, the supporters of Oliver Cromwell. The, um, they, they were sort of radical on the other side. And they, they were uh, eager to overthrow the king. They're the ones who actually execute Charles I. If the Presbyterians are not particularly eager to execute the king. They would rather, and I think their model was probably more like the situation um, several centuries earlier, where the um, the people in the countryside go to King John with Magna Carta, and they want to hem in monarchical power. Uh, they don't want to get rid of the king, but they don't want the king to be in absolute power. And so they, they form houses of parliament at that time. Right? They're, they're forming a, a popular branch, particularly the House of Commons, that uh, comes out of that idea. And so they, they start to balance, they come up with this idea of balancing. We've got the king, and we have the House of Lords, which is the upper chamber where we're we're balancing the royalty, the power of the, all the royal families, because a lot of these wars in Britain had occurred between different factions in the royal family. So we're going to recognize they have power. A lot of them had their own armies, after all. <clears throat> and then there's the House of Commons, which is 
you know, all of the, the, the poor plebes who don't uh, descend from royalty. But the idea was that even, you know, anyone who's being governed has a right to have some voice in the government. So the English-speaking people have this idea, um, and, and, you know, it's, that idea is actually uh, has, uh, it has a, a, an appeal to Protestantism. Right? I mean, Protestants later can look at that and say, there's a lot of what we're saying that comports with that. They're, that's not entirely out of step. So the English do have uh, a history of common law that is going to be um, generally sympathetic to where Protestants are going. Right? So in the, in the Solemn League and Covenant, <clears throat> they're not... Um, they're not necessarily looking to burn papists and prelates at the stake or anything else, uh, as some people have been wont to accuse them. Right? They they just think these are really bad ideas. Uh, they need to be rooted out. If they need to be shown for what they are, demonstrated to be corrupt and corrupting, and um, people need to get over them. So, <clears throat> let's begin with question one. Ought we to declare ourselves against those courses opposite to Reformation? Uh, because that's really what this is about. Okay, these are uh, these ideas are all, it turns out, in opposition to Reformation ideas. And the answer is yes. Let's begin looking at Romans 16, 17. Romans 16, verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Yeah, the, the fact is that the Apostle Paul uh, definitely has well-defined ideas, right? And he finally says to the Romans, listen. People who are trying to teach you contrary to what we've taught you, mark them and avoid them. Right? That's an important thing to keep in mind here because we're saying that popery and prelacy and heresy and, and, and superstition, schism, all these things are contrary to what the apostles are teaching. And the Reformation is interested um, largely in a return to apostolic Christianity. After all, they view what Romanism has done <clears throat> as a corruption, not only in doctrine, but in worship and discipline and government. And it turns out, we'll get to this eventually in the Psalm League, uh, they, they see this as affecting not merely church government, but also civil government. Right? This has what, what we think, how we think, affects everything. Remember, culture arises from cultists. How we worship forms our culture. That's why our culture today stinks. <clears throat> it's so corrupt and corrupting. Because it, it, to the extent that anybody still goes to church or worships, uh, the, the churches themselves are so corrupt. And this is what happened at the, at, at the time shortly prior to the Reformation. It was bad. Right, the church, we need to remember, has no power or authority 
to deformation, but only to reformation or reformation. 2 Corinthians 10, 8. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 8. <clears throat> for though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. The Apostle Paul says that apostolic authority is given for edification, not for destruction. Or as virtually every magisterial reformer, uh, Calvin, Zwingli, Luther, Bootser, uh, and, and on and on, uh, Vermigli, all of them quote this as, and, and translate the Greek here as saying, God has not given a power to deform the church, but only a power to reform the church. Right? And, and this, this point, this position is exactly why um, in, the, in the church, the, the Reformed Presbyterian Church has said any attempt to decline from reformational attainments is inherently unlawful. There is no authority to deform the church. There's only authority to reform. There's only authority to press on and go forward, not to go backward. If you're heading backward, if your course is backward looking, that is the spirit of Antichrist. It's drawing away from Christ. And that's what Popery did. And they're saying that's also what prelacy is about. We're going to come to that in a moment, but that's a large part of the point here. Indeed, the Apostle confirms that the power to command reformation may even be conducted with severity. 2 Corinthians 13.10 2 Corinthians 13, verse 10 Therefore I write these things, being, being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to, to edification and not to yeah, so the Apostle says, look, <coughs> I'm writing these things to you. I'm not there. I'm writing these things to you, and I'm not using sharpness, but he's saying I could, because that is in keeping with the power of edification, which I have. I don't have a power to destroy. I have power to edify. In other words, again, as the reformers say, I have a power to reform the church. I don't have a power to deform the church. And the power to reform the church is a power which can be conducted, yes, even with severity. And that power is designed to press the airing into soundness of faith. Look at Titus 1.13. Titus 1, verse 13. This witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Yeah, wherefore rebuke them sharply, severely. It's that same word that he used in 2 Corinthians 13.10, that they might be sound in the faith. And a lot of times people say, well, that that sounds too harsh. If it's reforming, it can't. Because the Apostle is saying, if it has a tendency to reform, that's within the scope to use sharpness if needed. Alright? That's not 
you know, reformation, this idea of gentle reformation is an effeminacy. It's, it's a demonic perversion. <clears throat> the apostle from time to time uses sharp words and they're usually reserved for people who are errant. Right, people who were in the way and are in the uh, on the way out of the way, uh, more or less. That's why James R. Wilson, who was one of the early professors at the Reformed Presbyterian Seminary in in uh, America, uh, said in his book on the atonement uh, that those who are advancing require gentleness; those who are departing merit even severe rebuke. All right, that's how the power of Reformation manifests itself against those things and those people who are departing. <clears throat> right? It's not, you don't smile as people are drawing away and say, oh, that's okay. And it's not the position of the church to be tolerant of, of heresy and error. Right? There's, there, it merits severe or sharp reproof. That's part of the power of Reformation. Anything less than that, in that case, is deforming in its tendency. And so we have to declare ourselves against courses opposite to Reformation. Again, people say, how can you guys spend so much time talking about what you are against? <clears throat> well, it's if you've been around long enough, you know that's not all we talk about. But we are required to talk about it. We have to talk about it. Because as Paul said in Romans 16, we have to mark those things so that people don't get turned aside by them. You need to know what they are so you can avoid them. Right? If, if I don't tell you that there's a pit in the way, that there's you know a snare that's been set up over there, it, it, it may look like it's a safe course, but it's not. And so... As um, uh, Jeremy Collier, who was no Puritan, uh, but he was an Anglican, said, you know, Ill, Ill things deserve ill names so that people don't uh, find them attractive, essentially. Right? When, we, when we use mild terms, we tone things down that are morally corrupt or corrupt in the church, when we try to make it sound not so bad, what we're doing is we're aiding and abetting. We're going to come to that point tonight. Uh, but we, we don't have a right to do that. <clears throat> so we need to declare ourselves against courses opposite to Reformation. It's our duty to uh, adhere to what has been attained and, uh, if possible, to, to try to be not only that reformed, but maybe a little, get a little further down that road. All right, question two. Uh, to that end, is it proper, relying upon God's grace, according to our places and callings, that respect of persons, to endeavor the extirpation of popery and prelacy? And again, the answer is yes. We're going to look at 3 John 9 and 10. 3 John, verses 9 and 10. I wrote unto the church, but the attributes who love would have preeminence among them received thus not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, 
upbraiding against us with malicious words and not content with therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren and forbiddeth them that would and casteth them out of the church. We, we need to understand that um, you can't have two contrary ideas contending in the church. You can't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, frankly, in, in, um, in civil society very well. It really doesn't work in the church. And so these ideas <clears throat> that it's okay for uh, some to have the preeminence, <clears throat> those kind of ideas need to die. They, they're, they're bad ideas. They shouldn't be allowed to uh, be entertained in the church. Um, we, you know, any discussion of them, uh, quite frankly, should already be prejudiced against them. And so the Solomon League and Covenant is, in this sense, uh, we're prejudiced against popery and prelacy. Right? Prejudice is, is the kind of thing you do to survive in a fallen world, right? You prejudge. You don't let everyone come through your door. You're prejudiced about who comes through your door. All right? And the, the Reformed Church is prejudiced against erring doctrine, particularly those things that resemble popery, because we know that popery is anti-Christianism in its most pronounced and condensed form. <clears throat> you know, it's it, people say, "Why are you so hostile against the Roman Catholic Church?" And, I, and and the answer you need to remember is, we are not hostile to Catholicism. We are hostile to Romanism. Romanism is the corruption of Catholicism. Right? Magisterial Protestants are actually Catholic. We believe in the Trinity. We practice infant baptism. Right? We, we believe in the person and deity of Christ. We don't hate Catholicism. We hate the corruptions that have been imposed upon the church by Romanism. And Romanism is, in fact, uh, that principle of Romanism, you can distill it, and if we could put it in one person, we would put a name on him, and we call him the Pope, and as our confession says, he is that Antichrist seated in the temple and church of God. So, popery, being that hierarchical system of that man of sin and the body of Antichrist, we get 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, and Revelation 17, 3 and 4. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and 4. But no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Revelation 17, verses 3 and 4. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. So we ought to seek to extirpate it. Revelation 17, 
16 and 17. Revelation 17, verses 16 and 17. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree, and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Yeah, so I'm not, tonight I, I'm not going to get into why we believe the Pope to be that man of sin, and Romanism to be the body of Antichrist, but um, you can't be a Protestant if you don't believe the Pope is the Antichrist. If you don't believe that it is the necessary conviction, organizational conviction of Protestantism, that the Pope is that Antichrist seated in the Church of God. That is... The the um, the point at which Protestants recognized that they had no affinity with Romanism. Catholic, yes. Romanish, no. Romanist, no. But there's a reason why, and we talked about this a few weeks ago in the National Covenant. When the Protestants came to power in Scotland, what did they do? One of the first things they did. They abolish the Pope's jurisdiction in Scotland. Right? They want to get rid of the Jesuits. They want to get all, get rid of all of the, the, um, the, 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 the mass and the, uh, the Popish priests. They want them gone. And now we're saying that a lot of these ideas are kept alive in prelacy. And while the um, the prelates may not see <coughs> they may not see the problem here, um, the fact is it, the uh, Jes- Jesuits uh, they had this idea that if they could keep certain words in use among Protestants, that in time they would be able to come back and give them their true meaning again. Right, so, this is why we want to get rid of these ideas. You have to stop thinking like a papist. People naturally actually think like papists, which is why Romanism is uh, so appealing to fallen people. Right, but by the grace of God, we shouldn't be thinking like that. Romanism, we need to understand, is a quasi-religious political usurpation of that kingdom which belongs to Christ alone in church and state. And we, we see this, we look at part of the component of Romanism in, uh, that's told us in Revelation 13. Look at Revelation 13, 1 to 8. Revelation 13, verses 1 through 8. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God 
and to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. <coughs> so, John in the Revelation sees Antichrist coming up out of uh, and the there are two beasts that are there. The first beast is the civil beast. He sees a civil aspect. And the reason I think the civil aspect is mentioned first is that although uh, this is a corruption in the church, uh, this is where we really see it uh, from a religious point of view, it is first and foremost a political uh, corruption and usurpation. Right. Remember, the doctrine of Christ's mediatorial reign is that Christ will rule and reign over all the nations of the earth. Well, the Pope uh, and the papacy made great pretensions to do that. You know, there's the, the famous story of, of um, Henry uh, being made to bow in the snow at Canossa, uh, outside of the castle, and he had to scream in to the Pope his apology. Because he, he as a, a, a leader of a nation, had offended the Pope. And the Pope, the Pope at that, during the Middle Ages, could do things like this. He would, he would issue what was called an interdict. And if he issued an interdict against your nation, no one could receive the sacraments. And if no one received the sacraments, Roman Catholics are told if, they don't, if they're not baptized, if they don't receive the Mass... They're going to hell. And what ha what do you think happens to a population of people? How are they going to respond to a political leader right? when the Pope is saying no to the priests here? You can't give them or you can't administer sacraments to them. You have a population increasingly out of control and usually the, uh, the princes of the earth during, during this period of time, they would capitulate. It was very clear what was going on. It's still going on to some degree, less clear now, but the governments of the world still bow the knee to what Rome is doing. All right? It's not quite in that fashion, but they still maintain and exercise an inordinate amount of uh, interference in the affairs of civil governments around the world. <coughs> and the more power the Roman Church has in any nation, the, the more pronounced that influence is in that nation. Right, so that this has been a problem for a long time, and the, the story of Henry of Canossa, uh, it's worth looking up and reading, sometimes an interesting story, but it's, it really shows you just how fearful uh, these people were. And they, they were very superstitious, very fearful. Right, and and they, the papacy uh, just doubled down on that, and the, the papacy has been a great money-making scheme and power grab for centuries. <clears throat> and the Vatican Bank is still at work. So this is not, uh, this is not just an issue you know, from the 1600s that we're talking about here. It's still with us today. Now, with that in mind about popery, keep in mind, prelacy, being in a hierarchical system, <clears throat> the, 
that is a lesser branch of that papistical dominion, ought to be overturned together with its pagan philosophy of governing. Right? Prelacy is a method of keeping alive the underlying pagan philosophy of popery. Right? It, it's, a, it's a way to get quasi-Protestants to become accustomed to the things that the Roman Church is teaching and their usages. Look at Matthew 20, 25-27. Matthew 20, verses 25-27. But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Right. So, prelacy is Popery's little sister. Uh, it, it is a system <coughs> which uh, a lot of times Protestants don't think of as being quite as offensive because they don't see the Pope at the top of that heap. But what it does is it trains quasi-Protestants to think in a popish fashion. And it just makes the, the um, reintroduction of popery much easier. Um, question three. Ought we to endeavor the extirpation of superstition? <clears throat> and the answer here is pretty easy. Uh, yes. Look at Acts 17, 22. Acts 17, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things we are too superstitious. Paul, when he was looking at the people in Athens, he saw what they were doing. He saw what they were, um, the, the discussions, overheard the discussions. One thing that he perceived among the Greeks was they were superstitious. And quite frankly, um, this has been the condition of the Gentile people prior to the coming of Christ, right? They're sunk in this darkness of superstition. Uh, they, you know, Gentile people <clears throat> have become so stupid by superstition before the time of Christ and some of the, the Gentile people still remain in this state. They're so stupefied by the darkness of their idolatry, some of them worship, you know, trees and plants. And and we're we're seeing <clears throat> we're seeing people return to that. You know, it, the the move away from the church is not a, a move away from religion. There are a lot of people today who will tell you they're spiritual. And when you press them, what you find is they've returned to the most base, degraded form of pagan heathenism, which it's called animism. They, they're willing to worship the gods in you know, rocks and leaves and, and things like that. That's why environmentalism is such a big thrust today. It's Gaia worship. It's paganism. 
you know, it, it, that's not to say that uh, we we should be polluting everything, but it is to say that there there has arisen this movement that has a religious uh, a religious stance, right? People get excommunicated if they disagree. And so they're they're worshiping all kinds of aspects of the lower creation. They're worried about you know all the the idea of, of life anywhere, right? And and eventually you know that translates into uh, you know that Hindu idea that I need to walk around on my bare feet lest I step on a bug and inadvertently kill my uncle. <clears throat> You know, it's because in their mind it's all tied together. It's superstition. <coughs> Gandhi, Gandhi, I think, used to walk around in socks to avoid stepping on, potentially stepping on somebody's relative and sending him back into nirvana to be reborn. It's superstition, and Paul saw this. This is nothing new. That's what's amazing about it, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, this has been here before, it's here again, and it's here because Christianity has been in retreat. But the Psalm Leading Covenant is about being not in retreat, but being, uh, being on the offense. Stop playing defense all the time. All, right, all superstitious observances, whether of rites and ceremonies or keeping of days, ought to be extirpated from the church as remnants of past heathenism. Jeremiah 10, 2 and 3. Jeremiah 10, verses 2 and 3. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the heathen are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. Yeah, and then Jeremiah goes on to list, and, and um, amazingly, so many of the features of you know, pagan idolatry that he, Jeremiah talks about in his day, there's still features of pagan idolatry, right? Things don't really change much. And people think that they're modern and they're progressive and they're this and they're that. Uh, they're, they're really just old-fashioned pagans and they don't know it. They're traditionalists, but they're pagans. Right? That's really what they are. Some of them actually come to a knowledge of this. They actually uh, embrace their, their paganism, you know, and they... They're out there worshiping Norse gods now. I never thought I would live to see a day when people actually were foolish enough to worship Woden and Thor and you know all of that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, it's just crazy. But this is the kind of thing that's going on. Anyway, these things being so many snares to lead people into gross idolatry, they must be extirpated. Deuteronomy 12, 30 and 31. Deuteronomy 12, verses 30 and 31, Take heed to thyself, that thou be not snared by following them, after that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods, for even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. And in, I mean, you, you, you know that we've reached a point of gross heathen idolatry, because heathen idolatry is always accompanied with infanticide. 
It's it's one of the uh, the rites of of passage. You know, we're worried about the lives of bugs, but you know, human human children uh, they can be offered up. You know, in the arms of Molech, and uh, we can sacrifice our children. It 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 comes to that. It always does. And there are a lot of reasons for that, uh, which are not really to the point of what we're talking about now. But superstition is a very dangerous thing. You know, again, there are a lot of people who say that they're rational, that they're uh, they're they don't they're not religious. They're uh, they tend to be um, you know thinking. Uh, circumspect people or what have you and then you find out they have some superstitious something I mean I've met people uh, who are well educated people and they're concerned because of superstition that you know I, I uh, when I, I leave their property I go out in the same door that I came in because it's bad luck if you go out, if you leave through a different door than the one in which you entered, uh, and and so there are all kinds of things like that. You know, some some things, and people are doing things you don't always know what they're doing. There's so many superstitions they don't always tell you. Sometimes they do. You know, but I've had people very insistent upon using the same door, uh, and and. There have been a couple of occasions where I've asked them and they finally admitted to me that that was what was going on. I happen to know that that's one of those superstitions. But you don't always know. And yet sometimes people will insist on something this way or that way. There's something superstitious going on. And some people invent their own superstitions. All right. Keep in mind that while the keeping of Jewish ceremonies was tolerated for a time after the coming of Christ, uh, during a period of accommodation, and we can see this, we look at Acts 16, 1 to 3, and Galatians 2, 3 to 5. Acts 16, 1 through 3. <clears throat> then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him, because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. Galatians 2, verses 3 through 5, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So let's let's be think about what's going on here. Right for a period of time after the coming of Christ, uh, there's a transition period where the Jews are tolerated to remain uh, in practice of certain ceremonies that they had learned from Moses. Right, and Timotheus, whose mother was a Jew. His father's a Greek, but his mother was a Jew. Uh, Paul was willing, on that principle of accommodation, to have him circumcised so as not to give offense to the Jews that they were trying to reach. 
But later, when Titus, who was not a Jew, he was a Greek, when the Judaizers came and said that the Gentiles have to keep these Jewish laws, Paul wouldn't give in at all. At that point, it became a matter of principle. And so we see that there's a shift about to occur. And when once people have given up and moved on, you see, to go back to these prior practices, that would be a problem. Uh, it was viewed as a matter of subverting the faith when men were persuaded to return uh, to return to them in light of the coming of Christ. Galatians 4, 8-10. Galatians 4, verses 8-10. through 10. Howbeit then, when ye, know, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them, which by nature are no gods. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, have turned ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Ye observe days and months and times and years. So Paul is upbraiding the Galatians at this point for being taken in by the Judaizers. And he's saying, if you go back to this, if you go, if you, uh, yes, God commanded this to the Jews, but with the coming of Christ, to go back to that would be to deny that Christ has come in the flesh. And he says, I'm, I'm afraid for you. Right? To go backward into the ceremonial aspects of this law is highly problematic. It's subversive of the faith. And Paul is not, uh, he's not going to give an inch on this point. As the Jews are coming out of this, out of the, the use of the ceremonial laws and, and embracing Christ, uh, Paul is admonishing them. If, if they go back, what are they doing? They're declining. And there is no power, apostolic power, to deform, only to reform. Thus the Apostle warns Christians not to allow themselves to be brought under these types and shadows again. Colossians 2, 16-23. Colossians 2, verses 16-23. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will-worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. So Paul's argument here, and a lot of times people will pull, this is one of the verses they'll pull, uh, when they, they say, well, you know, it's, it's not really, who are you to judge me in the keeping of this day or uh, whether or not I keep the Sabbath day or whether or not I keep this holy day or whether or not I do this or I do that. But what Paul is actually saying here is to uh, Christians, don't let these Judaizers judge you now that you know you shouldn't be keeping that anymore. Right? What need do you have of those ordinances 
They were types and shadows. Now you have Christ. Now you have the truth. Yes, those things, uh, they, they have some pretense, but they're really will worship at this point. Right? They're, they're pleasing to the flesh, but it's not the spiritual, uh, the spirit and the truth. Remember Jesus said to the woman um, that uh, the, the Jews were right, uh, not the Samaritans. The Jews were right to worship where they worshipped, but he said the time is coming and now is when they that worship me will worship in spirit and in truth. That is to say, not any longer in type and shadow. So all these arguments about types and shadows, whether we worship at this mountain or that, that becomes obsolete. It's a moot point. You don't need to raise those kind of questions. We're not concerned with that sort of thing anymore. We're not arguing about ceremonies, types and shadows, the rituals. You know, should I... Uh, sprinkle this way or that way the the uh, sacrificial blood. Do I pour it on the this? Do I start with this corner of the altar or that corner of the altar? You know, how do I keep Passover? We don't do that anymore. We don't have those. So Paul is admonishing the Colossians: Don't allow these Judaizers to come in. Don't let them turn you back. Right? You have no reason to. You have. The reality, those are types and shadows. <clears throat> and then perhaps these things were commanded of God uh, by God Himself, yet once perverted, not being a matter of natural morality, becomes an intolerable monument of idolatry. Look at Second Kings eighteen four. Second Kings eighteen verse four. He removed the high places and break down the, and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Noah's temple. Yeah, so look at what uh, a reforming king of Israel does. How does he handle reformation? Right? Not only does he take down the groves, the high places, which is where the Druids were worshipping, essentially, Druidic-type people. They're worshipping under trees, but they're really not just trees. Uh, when you look, they're, they're actually giant phallic symbols. It's a fertility cult. So he goes in and he tears all this stuff out. That's just pure heathenism. But look at that brazen serpent. That was something commanded by God. In Numbers, when they were in the desert, uh, when they're being assaulted by these flying, fiery serpents, God says to Moses, make a brazen serpent, put it on a pole. Whoever's been bitten, if he looks on it, he'll be healed. But what do they do? That thing that God told them to make for that point, and, and which was a type of Christ, shadowy, they turn it into something of perpetual uh, devotion, right? an object of perpetual devotion. They're burning incense to it. And so the reforming king destroys it. He calls it Nehushtan. It's an abominable thing. It's become an abominable thing. Why? Not because God commanded it, but because it being something that was, in fact, um, indifferent until God appointed its use. That, in, that thing was indifferent once God had appointed it. It wasn't indifferent, but they took that thing and they made it an idol. And once they make it an idol, then it has to be destroyed. The same is what happened with, uh, and you see it with devout Jews to this day. 
Right? They've turned the ceremonial laws of Moses into a formal idolatry. They are uh, fastidious about keeping uh, these ceremonial rites and, and so on. And they're, they're like very often like the Pharisees. Jesus is constantly condemning them. They're, they're stuck on the letter of the law. They, they have no respect for the, the, uh, the, the, the central holding of the law, the spirit of the law. It has to be destroyed. Right? There's a superstition. Superstitious when, we, when we're um, adherents of the letter rather than the spirit. All right, question four. Ought we to endeavor the extirpation of heresy? The answer is yes, Galatians 5.20. Galatians 5, verse 20. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, em- emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, and heresies. Yeah, these are all um, things that are being condemned. Obviously, heresy is one of them. Heretics are those who offend against truth. And I want to look at Acts 24.14 for that, and then uh, 1 Corinthians 11.19. Acts 24, verse 14. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which were which are written in the law and in the, in the prophets. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19. For there must be, there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Yeah, so here what, what we see is that um, uh, in Paul's case, obviously he's not a heretic, but the Jews think that he is because he is uh, doing something contrary to their, uh, their interpretation of the law. Like their, the, the particular Pharisaic usages. But Paul tells us elsewhere that there must be heresies to show who among you is approved, but they're, they're against the truth. That's what heresy is doing. It's offending against the truth. And in fact, from that passage, 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, 19, uh, we come to understand that heresies arise, and in the wake of heresy... Truth is set on defense, right? So that all of the all of the confessional statements of the church have been the result of contending with heretics and heresy. Right? They have to give an answer to these heresies. They have to give an answer to um, uh, the the errors that are being vented. Heresy signifies going astray from sound and wholesome doctrine and continuing stubbornly in the false opinion. Titus 3, 10, and 11. Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. The problem here is not simply that people have um, entertained some error that happens but the the job of the church is to dissuade you from that error right so when you persist in that and you become stubborn in that and you refuse to be reclaimed that you become a heretic 
right? You you may, as you're thinking about something, entertain for a period of time some heretical thought. It doesn't necessarily make you a heretic. Heretics are people like the Arians, who no matter how much the early, early church is trying to reason with them right, regarding the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, they just simply refuse to be moved. Like they're not going to um, to accept what the Orthodox are saying. And you can see that in how they um, uh, they conduct themselves in the course of that controversy, the early Trinitarian controversies. We know that heresy is a work of the flesh, which has no regard for condemning the approved uh, truth and peace of the church. We'll look at Galatians 5.19. Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. And then it goes on to mention in verse 20, heresies. Right? So think about that. The Apostle Paul puts heresy in the same category with things like adultery, murder, um, you know, things where a lot of people would still say those things are wrong. Right? Those are moral, uh, great moral infractions. They would uh, see that as being morally um, uh, culpable. But heresy? You know, and yet Paul puts that in the middle of heresy. You know, or in the middle of all these other, these other works of the flesh. These are works of the flesh. And because... At the root, you know, the, the stubbornness of the heretic is pride. There, there's this prideful opinion that you're going to entertain contrary uh, to the judgment of the faithful church. And, and that is, of course, a problem. So heresy, when embraced, is a damning disease. Look at uh, 2 Peter 2.1. 2 Peter 2, verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So heretics are... Um, they're embracing one of the most morally destructive diseases of the soul. This is a, a soul plague. And they, they can't see it. They, they don't see it. They don't want to see it. It must be extirpated because, as Paul says, it's like a spreading canker or gangrene or um, some of the early, I think some of the early um, translators translate cancer. It's like cancer if left in the body. 2 Timothy 2.17. 2 Timothy 2, verse 17. And their word will eat as doth the canker of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus. Yeah, the word eats like a canker. Right? And th this is... The reason it, it eats like cancer, I mean, heresy 
actually, when, when you entertain it as a real possibility, and this is again, why does the church, when it speaks of heresy, why does it speak of it always in a condemnatory tone and in, in terms of condemnation? Because it's a cancer, it's a spiritual cancer. And if, it's a, if, it, if it is at all entertained by you as a possible, uh, a possible viable uh, viewpoint, it will destroy you spiritually. It's very dangerous. You know, there's a reason why in these councils, uh, and when the when the uh, the theologians of the Church have gotten together, they always, in the end, they come down and they have they do have very harsh things to say about the, the those who are errant, right? They want you to know that this is bad. They don't want you to uh, even even to consider that this might be, you know, a possible alternative to the truth. Because this, what what heresy does, and, and Irenaeus uh, very famously in one of uh, he has a, a book on this idea of heresy. Uh, he talks about how. The truth, there's what he calls the rule of faith, the regular fidei, uh, and the analogy of faith, a proper or a, a sound or orthodox confession. <clears throat> that gives you a picture, a paradigm, through which to understand everything. Heresy is a distortion of that paradigm that is plausible. But when you begin to entertain it, you start falling into all kinds of errors, first around the edges, and then eventually, because it's like a cancer, it, it consumes itself. It, you, you end up being consumed by it, and many of these people, in the end, just find, you know, they, they basically show themselves to be total apostates from the faith. And it's because it's a cancer. So it, you can't tolerate that, right? I mean, people. When people go, they say, "Well, I've got a lump or whatever," and the doctor wants to do a biopsy. Now, tell them take the lump out, right? You don't tolerate if it's cancer. You don't want it to remain. You don't want to bust it open and let it spread. That's exactly what the church uh, is is doing with heresy. It doesn't want to let it spread. All right, question five. Ought we to endeavor the extirpation of schism? The answer is yes. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care of one for another. So, a couple of things, um, and, and this is very notable here. Uh, the apostle says schism happens in the body, right? And, and this is the reason why the, the, um, the faithful church from time to time has been forced to separate because we're not allowed to have schism in the body. And if you remain in a situation where you've got contending opinions 
over what ought to be settled matters, you're allowing schism in the body. Um, and so it becomes necessary to separate sometimes to avoid schism. Uh, schismatics are those who offend against charity. And schism is a carnal walking, usually accompanied with envying and strife. 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3. For ye are yet carnal, whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions. Are ye not carnal and walk as men? <clears throat> so, that kind of carnal walking is why you have these types of divisions in the body. When, when there's some kind of um, there's some kind of violation of the rule of charity. Schism occurs when you have people who are more concerned um, to put forth an idea that they have than to maintain the peace and purity of the church. Again, in, 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 this is almost always in terms of of things that, that should have been settled. You know, when people who are ministers and elders or people who are communicant members, uh, they feel the need to uh, advance ideas contrary to the standards of the church, they're engaged in schism. Right? Not every aspect of the church's standards uh, is a matter of divine faith, <clears throat> but every aspect of the church's standards is a matter of charity. Right? We may think that this or that doctrine, for example, could be uh, expressed equally well in these terms. Well, if by pressing that point, you're causing problems in the body, and you always have to remember, it's not ever enough to upset what has gone before. You can't just propose something equally good. It has to be clearly superior, right? Because something equally good, in the end, is never equally good because the older has the advantage of having withstood some period of trial. Right, But that said, when people are pressing these kinds of things uh, to a point where it's causing there to be an alienation of charity, uh, this is a problem. And so it's carnal. There's a carnality. And this, this they do first by bringing divisions in the body. In 1 Corinthians 11.18, First Corinthians eleven eighteen. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Yeah, and that leads ultimately to sectarianism and separationism, or separatism, I should say, separate separatism from lawful and well constituted churches. 
And so there's a lawful separation and there's an unlawful. And schismatics uh, often terminate in an unlawful. Look at Jude 19. Jude 19. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, not, having not the spirit. And Paul commands us to extirpate such schisms. 1 Corinthians 1.10. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Yeah, so anything that is conducive to the alienating of affection within a body, uh, that is schismatical in, in tendency. And it is um, a sin against charity at that level. Alright, let's move on to question six. Ought we to endeavor the extirpation of profanity? And the answer is yes. Ezekiel 22, 26. Ezekiel 22, verse 26. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean. And have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths. And I, and I am profaned among them. So this is a, a complaint throughout the Bible um, that I mean, think about it, it's a complaint when they haven't so much as distinguished between what's holy and what's profane. Right? And, and, and so what is profane um, you can't extirpate it until you've actually distinguished you don't know what is holy until you have, uh, in, in a sense, separated it from what is profane. Until then, it's mixed. And, and there's a problem here, uh, now, particularly nowadays, one, one area where I can think... Um, it, in terms of example, where this is uh, the confusion rages, is a lot of churches now teach this idea that all of life is worship. And so whatever you conceivably could do lawfully in all of life is conceivable to do lawfully in the worship of the church. Well, that's exactly to fail to distinguish between what's holy and what's profane. Right? What's profane ought to be influenced by what is holy, but what is holy should not be um, uh, mixed with or, or uh, watered down by what's profane. And, and when, when we say profane, I don't, I don't just mean uh, profane in the sense of... Um, and they're not talking about in the same in the sense of of being you know something necessarily morally evil, right? Uh, they're talking about that which is contrary to holiness. Holiness is what's separated, set apart for religious use, right? Profanity is that which is contrary to that. And 
when you know when you mix that in, and this is a big part of um, Episcopal worship. Uh, the, the, one of the tenets of Episcopal worship is that the light of nature can in fact um, give us uh, give us the lineaments of, of rites and ceremonies which can become religiously significant. That's what they're talking about. Bringing in that sort of thing. That's what's profane, right? It, it's not to say that, that this is necessarily morally uh, evil, but when we assign that sort of thing, and th this, this is one of these uh, issues when it comes to the, uh, the whole question of head coverings, which comes up uh, now and again. The, the question... Uh, the, the Episcopalians were saying that this is a light of nature issue which is according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 it becomes a religiously significant ceremony and from that then they're going to bring in every liturgy all their holy days all their other usages right? that's profanity in terms of what the Psalm League Covenant is talking about they're bringing in the profane into the sacred. Uh, they're not making a distinction. That's what Ezekiel's talking about too. Right? They're not making this distinction. The, and, and this is this is why um, wearing wearing it only in worship is making a light of nature ordinance a religiously significant ceremony, that's failing to distinguish what is profane and bringing that into the worship of God. That's the problem here. All right, And they're really, they're pointing, I, I, I use that example because this is one of the examples that gets brought up a lot when the Presbyterians are arguing with the Anglicans. Okay, But the fact is, the Psalm League is, is really aiming at all of the rites and ceremonies that the Anglicans are trying to bring into the worship of the church. And, and they also bring it into areas of discipline as well. Right? And it's also the basis even for government. You know, there you can't prove hierarchical bishops um, from, uh, from Scripture. But you might be able to argue for them uh, from so some sort of human convention. And while there may be uh, there may be a, a plausibility uh, as we talked about earlier, the practicality of it all, um, what might have been acceptable uh, in the beginning, what might have been acceptable say in Augustine's day when they couldn't see the end of where all this would go. It's no longer acceptable for us. We see the end of it all. It was popery. Right? So you have to make this note. Right? It's noted as great fault that the ministers of God do not distinguish between the holy and the profane. Look at Leviticus 10, 1-3. Uh, 
Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them as censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So what what's the problem here? I mean, they're they're what what's their big violation? The violation is a substituted fire of their own striking in place of fire from heaven that God would send down. Fire from heaven, holy. The fire of their own making, was there anything morally abstractly considered? Was there anything morally wrong with making a fire? No, they did it all the time. But they weren't to bring that fire into the worship of God. When they did, God kills them for it. That's failing to distinguish between what's holy and what's profane. So when people, uh, you know, if people say to you, "Why is your worship the way it is? Why do you guys do the things you do? Right? Why is it so limited? Why don't you have special music? Why don't you, you know, observe all these? Why don't you have liturgies? Why don't you do all these other things?" And the answer is because the reformers. Of the, the Reformed Reformation were concerned, very much concerned, particularly the Scots, that we make this proper distinction between what's holy and what's profane. And that we keep the profane out of the worship of God. The Lord promises a time coming when his ministers would teach the people the difference. Look at Ezekiel 44 23. Ezekiel 44, verse 23, And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. Yeah, let, let me just say that this is, again, this is a point at which and over which uh, there's been a lot of discussion, and I think it's not very well understood uh, by some some very... You know, some very uh, prominent people in the church. But loss of this distinction, loss of the understanding of this distinction, I should say, um, is really a loss of understanding how people like George Gillespie or William Ames. Um, when they argue against these prelates and their liturgies and their <laughs> corruptions in worship, they're failing to grasp exactly what's going on. And so when you see this extirpation of profanity here, you know, we tend to think of profanity as people using uh, Billingsgate, using uh, sort of vulgarities. That's not what they're talking about. Um, not, not that they were necessarily in favor of Billingsgate or or that sort of profanity, but that here they're talking about something very different, and so it's important uh, to keep this in mind because this is really a driving concern for uh, the Reformed churches, and it's why the regulative principle uh, is such an important thing, and why we need to be careful about the things that we bring into worship. We, we are allowed to do things in worship which are common to human actions in societies, 
Uh, and, and one of those things, as Gillespie and Ames and others point out, one of those things is women have their heads covered, right? Uh, that's just one of them. All right, so question seven. Ought we to endeavor the extirpation of whatsoever is contrary to sound doctrine and the power of godliness? The answer is yes. 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 11, and 2 Timothy 3, 5. 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 to 11. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless, the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for foremothers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is, was committed to my trust. 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Yeah, so it's the duty of the church to extirpate anything contrary to sound doctrine. And it's for this all teachers of the church should be trained. Uh, everyone who's teaching the church should understand what is not uh, in keeping with sound doctrine. Titus 1, 9. Titus 1 verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Um, again, the the issue here, uh, sound doctrine, uh, the power of godliness, um, the idea behind it is anything contrary is... Um, going to be eating out the spiritual life of the church. You know, the idea of the church is to have a coherent a communion that has a coherent and common confession of faith and a, a common concern for practice. Additionally, ministers ought to endeavor to inculcate the life and power of godliness and refuse that which is contrary. 1 Timothy 4, 6-8. 1 Timothy 4, 6-8. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Bodily exercise profiteth little. Godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So again, this is probably not as difficult a point to, to understand, at least at a basic level, that anything contrary to sound doctrine, anything contrary to the power of godliness, is undermining the, the faith and in, in life of the church. And so that's why uh, the apostles are so eager to see that people are going to be uh, elders, teachers in the church, that they are particularly equipped to deal with those kinds of situations, right? that they can answer those things, uh, those questions of doctrine, um, and they are, in fact, exercised in matters, uh, and the church used to teach, Casuistry, the the idea uh, was really how to apply the law of God to different situations. How do you work through ethical problems? Right.
how does this apply? And so this was a common thing. And now, especially, as some of these ethical challenges become more and more complex, I think it's necessary that, that the teachers in the church in particular are, uh, that, that they're um, uh, prepared for this sort of thing. And it should be on their agenda to understand you know, how the law is to be applied. All right, let's move on to question eight. eight and th this, I think, is another one of these more controversial points that they raise in Article 2. Uh, ought we to beware that we partake not in other men's sins and plagues? Uh, the answer is yes. Let's look at 2 John 10 and 11. 2 John verses 10 and 11. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evils. There is, and this I think is a result of the culture in which we live, that sort of live and let live and um, you know, mind your own business and, and all of that, uh, that idea, that sort of libertarian ethos in our culture. There comes with that um, a disavowing of responsibility for anyone but yourself. And yet, the problem is, you see, the Bible from its very inception, when, when uh, Cain, in essence, talks back to God and says, you know, I'm my brother's keeper. As soon as you hear the first murder in the Bible asks that question, uh, you know he's in the wrong, right? That question itself should have told you he was in the wrong. That's why it's there. Uh, the answer throughout the rest of the Bible is absolutely you are. You are your brother's keeper. And as a result, um, you, when you do all kinds of things, when you uh, cover for the sins of others, when you, um, you make possible the sins of others, when you support the sins of others, when you fail to, uh, to rebuke the sins in others, to whatever degree you let some mor something morally culpable pass, without whatever challenge is proper to your place and call, you bear a peculiar and coordinate culpability for what they've done. That's exactly why people who are in corrupt churches, they're culpable. They're, they're culpable for what's being taught. They're culpable for what that church is doing, how, how it's spreading corrupt doctrine, this is why when you participate in the political systems of the world, you know, you are culpable for what they do. You're agreeing to that proposition. You're signing on. And you're owning culpability. There are many ways of sharing the guilt of other people's transgressions. Right? It may be done by culpable silence, indolence, 
unconcernedness, private contribution, public countenance and assistance, inward approbation, that's a bad one, right? You see somebody doing something wicked and you just think to yourself, boy, I'd like to do that or good for them. It's very bad. Open apology and defense. Of course, that's very bad too. Look at Psalm 50, verse 18 of 1 Timothy 5, 22. Psalm 50, verse 18. When thou sawest a thief, then thou consentest himself consented with him and has been particular with adulterers. And First Timothy 5, verse 22. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Yeah, so we are commanded, and we could multiply these examples. Right? We're commanded by the Bible not to give uh, what, uh, what historically has been called aid and comfort to the enemy. Right, uh, sin is the enemy. Wickedness is contrary to the kingdom of God. It belongs to the kingdom of Satan. Shouldn't be giving aid and comfort to that. You know, sometimes you have to speak out. Sometimes you have to just say no. Sometimes you have to use words of strong rebuke. There, there are things that you have to do. Uh, it can be very uncomfortable from time to time. But the point is, if you don't, you become a partaker of that sin and you are also uh, basically itching to be plagued with that sin like God is going to plague those who sin in that manner. The divine call is for those who would be accounted the seed of the woman, the church, to come out of any participation or partaking of all things that incur moral guilt, lest we share in their plagues. Revelation 18.4. Revelation 18, verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. So, this call to come out. Right? This is a call that pertains to you as an individual. It pertains to you with relation to the ecclesiastical state of things in uh, whatever place you find yourself. And it, it has bearing on the political state as well. Remember, this, is, this verse is talking about um, Babylon. It's talking about Romanism and its effects. So this has, you know, we're talking about that quasi-political religious movement. Right? But this is a call to come out of all of it. Be separate lest we share the plagues. Right? You can't say I'm innocent of, of this transgression uh, if you, uh, you, you're approving of it. And by, by the way, just on on um, uh, on the account of uh, uh, like motion pictures and 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 um, plays and things of that sort, right? Very often, those dramatic presentations are designed to get you to give moral approbation. You have a sense of approval to something highly immoral. 
Right? The whole storyline is, is to draw you into a point where you are prepared, and very often you are, uh, you're going to be guilty of giving assent, approbation, to something which, if I just told you, uh, said to you off, uh, outside of the context of that storyline, would you think that someone who did this and just gave you that action, you would say, absolutely not. That is not acceptable. Right? But they draw you in. It's just another way that they confuse you and corrupt you. All right, don't be fooled. All right, let's look at the last question then. Question nine. Ought we to endeavor that the Lord may be one and his name one in our national capacity? The answer is yes. Zechariah 14, 9. Zechariah 14, verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. Yeah, and keep in mind, this is a, a theme throughout the, the uh, Solomon and Covenant. Uh, they're looking for, uh, really, they're looking for a uniformity in the church and a submission of the, uh, the national uh, state, uh, England, Scotland, Ireland, and, and the plantations and everywhere else uh, where, where uh, the, uh, the sun doth shine her rays. Um, they're looking for all of that to be brought into submission to the reign of, of Messiah. Right, so the kingdom of God among men shall be a universal united kingdom of Messiah the Prince. Look at Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. That's the promise. And that promise um, is, as you point out, twofold, right? It's going to be universal, and it's going to be united. And both of these are important. Uh, that it's going to be universal and united. And it has very, uh, very serious um, bearing on, on this last question. So first, it shall be a universal kingdom. When we'll get to Psalm 47, 2. Psalm 47, verse 2, For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. Yeah, so the Lord shall be king over all of the earth. That's the first thing that you need to keep in mind. It is universal. Right? The, the promise to Christ for his suffering and dying in, in the ascension is that God would give him a kingdom that would be over all of the kingdoms of the earth. And that the kingdoms of this world uh, will become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ at some point is promised. He is and ever was so of right and in the sovereign disposals of His providence His kingdom does rule over all and none are exempt from His jurisdiction. 
Daniel 4.35. Daniel 4, verse 35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Of course, that's um, Nebuchadnezzar's confession after God humbles him. But he speaks, I think, by the Spirit of God here when he says that um, there's none that can stay his will or tell him, you know, or say to him, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? God is sovereign over all of the earth. And so uh, we, we know that, right? But what's in view here is actually something a little bit more. What, what's here promised is this, that he shall be so by actual possession of the hearts of his subjects. Um, look at Psalm 110.3. Psalm 110, verse 3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. And he shall be acknowledged king by all in all places. Psalm 72, 8 and 11. Psalm 72, verses 8 and 11, verse 8. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth. And verse 11, Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. And we know his authority shall be owned and submitted to, and allegiance sworn to him. Psalm 102, 22. Psalm 102, verse 22. When the people are gathered together, the kingdom and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. So this, this universal kingdom that we're talking about, that we're concerned with and what is in view in the Solemn League has to do with the Messianic Kingdom. This is not simply an expression that they're concerned that um, God reigned you know, in generality, right? that there's a general morality, but they're, they're really concerned for the Kingdom of Christ to be expressed in and through their kingdoms. And we know that this is going to have an accomplishment when that seventh prophetic trumpet sounds. Revelation 11, 15. Revelation 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there, was, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So, again, we know from this that... Um, the promise is to that end, right? That every nation will be brought under the sway of the royal scepter of Christ. The second thing about it, and this is also important, uh, an important thing to keep in mind, because this is also in view, and this is why the Solemn League and Covenant is sworn, and that is that the idea is it should be a united kingdom. In Ephesians four five. Yeah, so there's going to be one Lord, and his name is going to be one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Right, this idea of denominationalism that's taken root in uh, Western culture is foreign to the idea that is put forth here. Um, it is an aberration. 
so we should expect that there there's going to be a unification of this, right? It, the, the, um, the kingdom is not only going to be universal, but it will be united. Right? So it's not going to be sort of an aggregate of you know, congregationalists and Anglicans and Presbyterians and Baptists and you know, all these different papists, uh, all these different groups. The picture in the Bible is one in which uh, the church is united in its its um, confession, united in its um, in its practice. Right, and, and let me just say here at this point that these ecumenical movements are actually going about it in entirely the wrong way. What they're trying to do is what Romanism did. Romanism wanted to have, their idea of unity was have a unity of government with a diversity of purposes under that umbrella. And that's what these ecumenical groups are doing, whether we turn to the World Council of Churches, which is a big liberal one, or we talk about uh, NAPAR, the North American uh, Presbyterian Reformed Church group. Uh, they're, they're also, uh, they, they are content to have a universal, or I should say unified government of sorts, uh, but they're going to allow diversity of, of faith and practice. Right? That's exactly contrary to what is promised here. And then, by the way, that's the defini de definition of schism in the body. They are, in fact, schismatics. The ones who promote this. Right? Ecumenism, which is being sought at the expense of uniform, uni unity in the truth and uniformity in, in practice, is a false ecumenism. All shall worship one God only and not idols, and shall be unanimous in the worship of Him. Psalm 22, 27, 28. Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. All the kindreds, kindreds of, the nature, of the nation shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He is the governor among the nations. Yeah, and, and we know that all false gods shall be abandoned and all false ways of worship abolished. And this God shall be the center of their unity in whom they shall all meet. So the scripture shall be the rule of their unity by which they shall all walk. Isaiah 2, 17-22. Isaiah 2, 17-22. And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be made low. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And the idols he shall utterly abolish, and they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. And that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one of each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake the, terribly the earth. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Yeah, modern, the modern ecumenical movement is, um, is according to the spirit of this world. 
right? It's according to the wisdom and policy of man. And you know that it is because it's not achieving anything more than um, an advance in this unified governance, right? Men like hierarchy, they like bureaucracy, they like every kind of convoluted uh, social structure that makes it seem as if they're connected. And they, they, at this point, fallen men would rather have that than have actual agreement. Right? And this is what they're doing. And when they do it in the name of the church, it's really, really bad. So these ecumenical movements are bad in their, in their um, origin. They're bad in their, their purposes. Uh, they're, they're not just misguided. They are bad right? because they are inculcating in people a sense that schism in the body is an acceptable thing. And Paul tells us that schism in the body is really the source of all of the disunity that they, they um, profess to disclaim. And yet this is exactly, they're, they're going to maintain that philosophy and they'll continue to press it until, um, really until the millennium. So with that in mind, then uh, we, we're going to be moving on to the third article, and that's what we'll take up next time.